But now we don't have any value. You know, I this reminds me of something that I think about in Terminator a lot, which is that obviously they they made the robots for like general purpose, but why did they make them shaped like chrome skeletons? And also, why did they make them incredibly good at killing things? <laughs> right? It's like we need a new construction bot. And all right, here you go. Hear me out here. I think it's important that if they're going to lift boxes, they looked like a chromed up skeleton, like some uh, Stone Cold Steve Austin thing. And someone's like, that actually meshes well with some notes that I had, which is that they should be exceptionally good at killing. They should be able to target the, uh, the fatal points of a human body with pinpoint accuracy and fire firearms directly into them easily. And someone's like, for the construction robot? And they're like, yes. And they're like, approved, absolutely. Yeah, and then one guy says, well, before you build them, what if they were also able to become liquid, thus able to gain access to any structure we <laughs> might hide ourselves in in case they started hunting us down? And everybody's like, that's awesome. I mean, at this point, why wouldn't yeah, like, we I'd... add that feature? Yeah, there's, there's no reason why I would ever like ask to not have this. Seems, uh, yeah. seems a bit obvious to, you know... So throw in so there. Gene Wolfe, renowned science fiction author, also had a question about robots. What if they were sexy? Yeah. What if they were like really hot? And also your cousin? Okay. That's well, a that's that a twist. Be, that would be wild. Haha <laughs> JK unless. Right? <laughs> Hello, welcome to Death Sentence, episode, Book of the New Sun, episode one, which is not actually the first episode, if you haven't heard episode zero, because we're so cool and edgy that we have an episode zero, go and listen to that, because we kind of lay out what we're going to do, and what we are going to do is go through the first book of the Book of the New Sun a.k.a. The Shadow of the Torturer. And just to remind you, in case you can't be bothered to go back and listen to that episode zero, we're kind of going to follow the plot, but this is not an actual read, right? So we're not going to be doing every chapter, and we might skip ahead, and there's going to be a lot of spoilers, because you, oh, can't, yeah. really, you can't really <laughs> explain what the fuck is going on without doing spoilers. So with that I, in I'd mind... Even, I'd even argue that with this book in general, I don't know how you could discuss it, period, without getting into... Like, there's certain books where you can talk about, say, the verb, the directionality, some thematic elements, and it wouldn't really spoil it. This book is so tightly woven, like every piece, the whole tetralogy actually is so tightly woven, every piece fitting into every other piece, that I legitimately don't think you could talk about one component of the book without just completely spoiling it. Yeah, totally. Which is so, yeah, go on. 
Oh, I was, I was just going to say that's that's probably um, the biggest argument that I've ever heard for why this might be the best sci-fi book ever, which is that it it achieves that um, that aesthetic thing that artists sort of strive for a lot of times within work, which is for it to be like a singularity or like a monolithic rather than um, like fractional or um, fr fractalized. I guess to, yeah. to dive into that thought slightly, it's that like all of the work is one work. It's not like six thoughts that sit next to each other. It's one big thing. If you slice any piece out of it, you get the entire artwork out of it as well, which is like, how the fuck? Like, in a sense, all art tries to like recreate the world and the world is a totality, right? You can't take anything yeah. out of reality. So the closer that art gets to simulating that, the the more believable and artistic it becomes. Not all art has to aspire to that, but a lot of art does. Yeah, that's at least one of the modes that we see in art. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So branching off from that, let's talk about the very first scene of Book of the New Sun and Shadow of the Torturer, which actually, if you're paying attention kind of already contains a lot of the elements that the book is about. And in that scene, Severian and his comrades, his other apprentices to the Guild of Torturers, they are trying to make their way back into the Guild after curfew, right? Back to the Matachin Tower, which is the section of the Citadel in which their tower resides. And in order to do that, they have to go through the necropolis, right? This huge um, graveyard that is situated right beneath the Matachin Tower between it and Gayol, the river that runs through Nasus, the city that we're in. And in order to do that, they have to make their way, lie past a group of militia, right? Commoners, city people that are armed, and are moving into the necropolis because they've heard that something is happening. And something is happening. There's a guy in the necropolis breaking into it and stealing a corpse. And this guy is called Vodalus. And as the story will unfold, we'll be told that Vodalus is a rebel and a bandit, a highwayman, leading the resistance against the Utark, who is the, you know, monarch of wherever this story is situated. And what transpires, well, there's two versions of what transpires. There's <laughs> what Severian tells us that transpires. And what Severian tells us that transpires is that Vodalus and his compatriots, which is a man undescribed, but there's some theories to who that person is. And a woman, specifically a beautiful woman who looks like a noble, they dig up the corpse and before they can make good their escape, they are beset by those same militiamen and Vodalus uses some sort of gun, some sort of weapon that's obviously technologically advanced to fire a warning shot and scare the assailants away which is somewhat successful, but an assailant still attacks him. And who 
else but Severian blocks the lethal blow, right? Uh, this guy, this militia man, is trying to kill Vodalus and he raises his axe and Severian steps in and blocks the blow. But here's the thing. Remember, if you listen to episode zero, where we said that Severian remembers everything perfectly, but he lies. Throughout the book, you'll find out that Severian idolizes Vodalus and he's always frustrated by his want to help him but his inability and even patheticness in being unable to actually assist Fodorus. The question is why? Why does he constantly feel like he's a loser? Why does he constantly feel like he's not doing enough to help him? I think, and many other people think as well, that it's because he didn't actually stop the axe. Right? Like that's an embellishment on his part. It's what he wished he would do. If you read those segments, he says he's like stalking and hiding and looking at the action scene and then everything kind of changes and becomes dreamlike, like he's fantasizing about what he would do. And we know that Severian is kind of a coward in many cases, right? And he's not beneath, you know, hiding and letting others take the blame for him. So in the very first chapter, no one tells you this doesn't happen. Like Severian tells you, this is what happened. I blocked the axe. But if you read between the lines, it's clear that he kind of like stood on the wayside and watched Vodolos being nearly killed. And it's someone else that saved Vodolos. But Severian wishes that it was him. So that's what he tells you happened. This... And this kind of like mechanism of Severian really wanting something to be true or wanting to believe that he acted in the way that he wanted to act changes the story that he tells you. So that's like, that's like the first 20 pages. And we already have this like duplicity. It Before Vodolus escapes, one sec, I'm going to segue to one of your more interesting theories that I didn't catch on. Um, <laughs> before, before Vodolus escapes, he gives Severian a coin. And the coin has, remind me, it has Vodolus's figure, right? Embossed yes. Right. And this coin becomes like this um, object of curiosity that Severian is going to constantly think about and, and gaze at and, and handle. And he's going to do that over the next few chapters where very little happens as far as plot <laughs> in a mausoleum in the necropolis, right? Yeah. So one of the big... So it's worth noting as a meta point before saying this, that there's a bunch of theories about this book. Some of them work with each other. Some of them don't. And potentially all of them are true, even when they don't work with each other. Because again, it's a work of art. It doesn't have to cohere to the strictures of firm reality where you can't have contradiction. One of the, uh, and Gene Wolfe is very, very well aware of that. And he riddles the book with very subtle contradictions um, so it's not, it, if you read it on the surface level, you're not going to run into any, but as you get into these analytical crevices, you'll, you'll find a bunch of them and, uh, being a good Catholic boy, um, it's very likely that he just wanted us to ponder the mysteries of these contradictions rather than necessarily have a means of resolving them. So if you ever get a point, get to a point where we say something, you go, I'm not sure that that works with, you know, this thing over here. 
Um, we're aware of that. Um, and uh, whether they are supposed to work or not, no one knows because Gene Wall famously shut the fuck up about his book and then died. Um, but <laughs> one of the theories that I uh, that I sort of subscribe to with this book is that most of the time, if a character has an obscured identity, there is a non-zero chance they are Severian uh, from some other time or perhaps from another timeline. Um, you get more insight about that. Uh, here's the point where we, uh, where I have to remind you that we warned you on full spoilers. Um, there's points in yeah. later books where they explicitly talk about time loops and Severian visiting previous moments or visiting moments in a non-linear fashion through time, as well as people coming to visit Severian from other moments in time. A further book after this, Earth of the New Sun, literally lays out mechanically how that works. Like they talk about the machine and, and everything like that. And this opens up the door that given the, uh, the deep nature of masked identities and the nature of Severian being masked, and very importantly, that we never get a description from Severian of what he himself looks like. Um, aside from a dude, he wears a cloak. Um, this opens up the door for people to be able to, for him to be able to potentially visit himself at various moments. Um, this is compounded by the fact that uh, there's a pretty big camp that believes the mausoleum that he is in is his own mausoleum, as in it houses his corpse. Um, this plays into a theory that, uh, for a while, we don't get any insight about what Vodalus was doing, uh, seeking to acquire a corpse in, in the necropolis. Um, we do eventually get later hints, not in this book whatsoever, but in, in later stuff. But one of the big, uh, guesses and one of the ones that I favor is that Vodalus was retrieving the corpse of Severian. As we'll later find out, Severian is mm -hmm. beyond immensely important. And this importance is known to various figures. Um, this doesn't show up whatsoever in this first book, which makes reading and rereading specifically Shadow of the Torture one of the most fascinating parts of the book to reread. Because um, the more you come back to it, the more you realize that Gene Wolfe was laying out a million mysteries sometimes densely compacted into one little moment. So, so let's use that as a segue to two of the other figures, which I think reread differently. And especially once you've read Earth, which is the two masters. Yeah. Or I should rather say the three masters, right? The two <laughs> living masters and the third dead reconstructed returning master and of course talking about master Melrubius that is the old master who has passed away and returns in Severian's mind or in some sort of metaphysical way we'll get to that somewhere in the second book I think um, <laughs> master um, Pylamon there's a diphthong in there so pronouncing that is a bit difficult and fuck what's the name of the third guy uh, Gerlos Gerlos right so or Gerloes, Palaimon, on... Yeah, how you want to pronounce it. Yeah. So Palaimon is the oldest master currently living, but Gerlios is the master that's kind of calling the shots and who has more influence over 
Severian's life and his discipline. Now, he's a very interesting figure. At some point during Severian's um, encounter with him, he's constantly being described as very um, contradictory with himself, right? He constantly drinks to keep the demons at bay. He's conflicted. He has swaying emotions. And more interestingly, and this can be a segue to discussing the Matachin Tower and the Citadel, he is described as going to the top of the Citadel and conversing with voices from afar. Now, like we said in episode zero, through several allusions that happened during these chapters, which is why I'm talking about it now, where Severian is familiarizing us with the structure of the Citadel, it's very, it's very heavily hinted that the Citadel is a spacecraft. Um, it has propulsion chambers. Instead of doors, it has bulkheads. Instead of windows, it has ports. Instead of being built of stone, it's built of metal, and so on. You even get a, uh, a specific bit when they talk about the very top of the tower being a glass dome with chairs that are... Uh, tilted the wrong way and it's clearly that those are captain's chairs and they're pointed straight up because that's where like that's the point where if you haven't gotten it yet you're like oh fuck like yeah that's a spaceship (laughs) yeah so if master Gurlios goes to the top to speak to disembodied voices that can be understood as a radio or some form of other communication which is what I would like to posit we know that before the book is like in the t- chronologically inside the, the literary world, Earth was a trans-solar empire. It spanned millions of stars, and it encountered many, 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 many aliens and other beings whose technology is advanced enough to be indistinguishable from magic, as C. Clark's third law goes. So, and the, the disembodied voices conversing with the master are described as weird and eerie and overpowering and and strange so he's not using the radio to talk to like some guy at the other side of the of the city he's conversing with alien entities from the dead parts of the earth galaxy now if you're listening to this and you've read all five books and maybe even the other um series that's what I was you about to bring up. You <laughs> might ask yourself. Yeah, yeah. Are these the um, hyper-tetragamatron? I think that's what they're called. They have like such a fucking stupid name. Um, are these the aliens that are orchestrating all of this? So really, really, really briefly, and I'll, I'll explain why I'm talking about this now. There are aliens who are so advanced that they live in this like hyper-plane from which they influence reality through actors and they're, they're like angels. angels, right? Yeah. In, in, our, um, in our setting. Dear reader, they're angels. He's Catholic. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, they're, they're, they're totally <laughs> angels, right? So, and, and they're operating on, on reality. And it's very clear when you reread the books that they're operating on Severian, right? That they're guiding his life to become the Messiah, right? To become the, the conciliator, to, to bring the new son. We actually get, um, we, so, some, something that's also important to note here uh, in terms of 
thematic stuff that sort of drives home that it very likely is those angels talking to him. So we have a young Severian um, being guided by three masters. Um, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to go like, okay, so a future Messiah with three old dudes guiding him. Okay, that's the three wise men. And then you go, well, who guided the three wise men to to the young baby Jesus? And it was an angel read as a, uh, a light in the sky so that you get an alien angel leading the three way. It's, I somehow, this is worth saying. When I first read this, I somehow missed completely how absolutely like 100% uh, hyper-Christian this is. I don't know how um, in retrospect. Um, the only thing I can guess is that like a lot of people, I mention this because I think it's it's relevant to how he anticipated mm-hmm. this would be read by people. Um, like a lot of people who, uh, at least of my generation, may a little older, my, uh, my dad and my grandpa, uh, let me rephrase that, my dad and my uncle were huge sci-fi fans. So like my dad was buying Dune as the initial books were coming out and he gave his copies to my uncle who was about 18 years younger than him. And then my uncle gave those copies to me and I got their old copies of like iRobot and all that stuff. So grew up with sci-fi in the house, but, and I even grew up Christian, but I was young enough to just sort of like, Oh, that's people just draw from that stuff. Okay. I didn't really get how, um, uh, how much Gene Wolfe was drawing from it. It made sense later when I found out that he was like yeah. hyper Catholic, like all his life, um, which explains also certain severities within that's that pun is not intended by the way. Jesus, I feel dumb now. Certain severities of his interpretation of the faith as they get embodied through this. It's important to remember that deep Catholicism. <laughs> so there's a certain kind of notion of, Christ is human in a certain capacity, but God is not. God is very much a fierce and judgmental figure, an orchestrating figure. Um, That, and also that it, uh, specifically within Catholicism, that the world is one of divine mysteries, that there are mechanical reasons for certain things. But there are others that are remainder perfectly behind the um, the shadow of God. Like the the the, per, the cloud of unknowing. So, yes. oh, you go on. So going off that idea, you know, we're talking about this influence on civilians' life and this idea of of a mystery. We're doing it now because it changes yeah. the way that you read those first chapters. If you think about Severian as someone whose life is being interfered with, as someone who is put on a path deliberately to become the conciliator with the people who put him on the path angling for control of him or angling to influence him towards that position things in the first chapters start to look a bit different so for example jumping ahead a bit master palamon intervenes with severian's punishment and he gives like really flimsy reasons for why they're not executing or reporting Severian. Oh, it will be embarrassing for the guild if you were put on tribunal because we're the torturers and we're supposed to met out justice. So how would it look? It's like no one knows about the guild of torturers. 
No one gives a shit. When Severian goes out into the world, everybody's like, in the city, they're like, huh? Torturers? That's <laughs> weird. And we'll get to why that is in a sec, but it's a very flimsy explanation. A better explanation is he wants, or they all want, to put Severian on this path of exile. I to put him on the path that eventually leads him towards the House Absolute and the Utark and the Truth and eventually towards the New Sun, right? And he doesn't just put him on his path. He gives them. He gives him Terminus Est, right? The soul that will play such a pivotal role in Severian's career and life and perception of reality, right? Like it's, Terminus Est. It, it, it's a mind-bogglingly important sword to the so, point where Terminus Est, as a sword, gets referenced normally as shorthand for Book of the New Sun in other works. So you'll see Terminus Est show up in, for instance, it shows up in Castlevania, um, which pretty far flung, but it it is so deeply tied with the thematics and the guts of this story that it often becomes the shorthand for the entirety of this series when other works are referencing it. Big fucking deal. A big sword to just give some guy that yeah. presumably you hate. Like, like it, it's a bit weird. Like, yeah. Like he broke every single. Yeah. He broke every single tenant of our <laughs> guild. We should give him a job and like, this oh, super I'm so pissed at you. Very you have this magical sword. Bugatti. That, that doesn't talk. make sense. Like, yeah. That's how mad I am. Yeah, exactly. So it's like. But if you go one step further, you know, other things in Severian's duration during the Citadel, which is what these first um, chapters are about, start to be more clear. Like, have we heard of any other torturer's apprentice being sent to the library at the bowels of the Citadel? Thereupon to be educated on how this library is actually infinite and contains possibly all of human knowledge like Roche or Drott or Etta his his friends his other apprentice friends they don't get sent on errands like that right they are not exposed to these mysteries and for good reason they're also not visited by master Malrubius right who is possibly what's called in the books an idolon which is kind of a being between reality and unreality possibly conjured by Severian's supernatural um, nature, for lack of a better word. Um, he, he doesn't like appear to other apprentices because Severian is not like other apprentices. He is being manipulated and guided by these forces. We get, we, we get actually a number of different... The um, this is sort of a mechanical puzzle that I think is, is a worthy mystery of this, of how does Malrubius, presumably dead appear to him and we get a number of somewhat contradictory not fully but somewhat contradictory explanations there's the obvious one which is that he's not dead somehow the second one which is that he's dead and he's a ghost the third one which is yeah. that an eidolon is perhaps an ai um and they don't know what these are anymore and so perhaps none of the masters as we know them are actually living people they're perhaps robots or or AI. We get a later one, which is that maybe the angels have sent him back. Uh, there's perhaps that the masters are vehicles of the angels themselves. And so, so we wind or 
later you get the uh there's hints in a later book that Severian literally like subconsciously summoned him from the dead for further guidance because he was like, I have a question, and only this guy. The fact that all yeah. of these kind of fit and kind of don't fit hits um that that deeper uh that deeper component of Severian being a mystery to himself. This seems to be fundamental on some level to Severian's nature yeah. as a liar that this perhaps come from comes from his own lack of self-perception. It, it, it thematically comes in with the fact that he never describes himself physically, really, so. that he's this like perfect occlusion to himself. He can perfectly witness all of the world, but he can't see into his own mystery which I'm like, ooh, oh, that's tasty. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So, moving, so we've covered one group of forces that are very present in the beginning of the book, right? The masters and how they train Severian and what they decide to show him. So, let's introduce the second force that is operating on Severian throughout the entirety of the series and makes its first appearance in the citadel itself, and that is <laughs> Father Inire. Father Inire is mentioned by name in the beginning of the book as the Utark's advisor, spiritual leader, counterpart, and as a very intimidating and powerful person. He's described as a lecher and maybe even a pedophile, um, someone who has this twisted um, fascination with um, the the girls of the nobility, but also as a genius with access to great science and manipulation of reality. Now, here's the thing. Almost, if not all, of the old, wizened, mysterious men that you'll encounter in Book of the New Sun is Father Inire in disguise. Father Inire is a master of illusion and deception. He gains access to these powers via his mirrors, which are some sort of engine, right? It's explained in the first book. There's the whole part with the fish, the fish made of light, but also later on in the fifth book that this is how the spaceships worked, right? This is like the FTL drive of of this reality. And it also enables manipulation of light and form. So Father Inere is um, able to disguise himself very, very powerfully. But, you know, in a classic literary trope, something of the internal morality of the man is it, always reflected in the forms that he chooses to take. It's at this He's point that I, I need to... Someone needs to say the obvious. Uh, he's Satan. I was talking with my roommate about this. Uh, and my roommate, who, who's a huge <laughs> fan of, of this and has read yeah. it a couple times now, um, looked at me weird when I said that. And I was like, come on, come on, like, come on. That's not even kind of hidden. And this is also where the deep Catholicism of Gene Wolfe plays a part in this as well, because it's specifically, it's not just that the satanic figure, this master of illusion, this hyperbolic genius in the ways of the world that also masquerades and sort half masquerades as, as a spiritual leader. He, he is, but it's questionable within the book 
the insights that he's giving people. Um, he's very clearly this satanic figure, this luciferic tempter that pops in and out of the world. Um, but it's also important to keep in mind that he is he is kept at the right hand of the autarch, who is a combination of both the pope and like a pope king, because again, he's very Catholic. So Gene Wolf's Gene Wolf actually half openly advocated for a theocracy, a, a, like a Catholic theocracy in his life. Weird dude. Um, but within the book, he operates half as like a pope king and half as like a stand-in for god um so the position of father Anire at in this yeah. position and being allowed out into the world isn't incidental and it's somewhat implied that the autarch is both aware and partially consents to this because it fits some sort of greater plan of the autarch that he is uh we get little notions early on that there's perhaps a quiet power struggle. But as shown in later books, the Autark is actually pretty well aware of everything Father Anire does and is not really threatened by him at all. And is like, no, he does that because I let him. Um, well, I mean, we're getting so far ahead of ourselves, but that I was about to, uh, <laughs> I was holding off on that one a little bit, but yeah, these are before we go into that. <laughs> God, I love this book. So before we go into that, like before we go into that, okay. Before we go into that, why are we talking about Father Inira here? Like, why are we bringing this up? Where does he appear in the first few chapters? So the first time that Father Inira appears, he appears as Rudesind, um, who is repairing pictures, huge uh, paintings or pictures on a wall and this is one of the first points where i fell in love with the book because the image that he's repairing yeah. is of the moon landing now it's very clear it's it's it talks about someone in a white suit with a golden visor reflecting the sun and there's a flag that doesn't move in the wind it's the moon landing and rudesend is repairing this um image because it is displayed in the Citadel as this glorious event in history, right? Obviously, for spacefaring civilization, the moon landing would be some sort of like, you know, precursor event. But no one remembers it. Severian doesn't remember it. And Rudison doesn't either. Like he says, I'm not sure why I'm touching up this image, but I know that every few years I have to do it because it's very important. And also during the conversation with Rudison, we start to get this feeling of weird space he says a few things that are kind of confusing as to where the house absolute which is the utarch's center of power lies in relation to the citadel and to other landmarks and it starts to get hinted that they're one in the same place right the citadel the house absolute and also the house azure um well the like the concubines of the utarch are kept are all in the same structure somehow and that space is kind of like breaking down between them and and Rudesind alludes to that but also talks to Severian a lot about the past and what came before us and our responsibility towards memory and stuff like that and in a sense starts to nudge Severian on his path now this figure will come back many times the 
Boatman later in the Botanical Gardens, which we'll get to because there's a very interesting application there. Um, maybe even Hethel, who appears later, and many other old men, mysterious old men, are actually in a guiding Severian, changing Severian, making him think differently about things for his own Oh yeah, that's, that's way later. I don't later. really want to get into those ends right now, but he's... But you can think of him as sort of a governor, right? He's like a, a governor instilled on Earth by I mean, those we get, angels. This is, but this he is has where his I think own going back to right, like he, we're going to go back to the Bible quite a bit if I have my way. Ooh. Um, but it, it becomes relevant here because the role of <laughs> uh, the temptation of Christ in the desert. Um, it's worth noting that this is presented, depending on your theological background, this is either presented as um satan attempting to derail the uh plan of god by telling christ giving christ visions of like what if you went off and lived a life of pleasure with all of your powers and conquered the earth and all this kind of stuff but it's also interpreted sometimes as like two brothers talking to each other and one of them being like i don't want to see you go off and die you know here are all of these other um potential paths that The third part is that Christ obviously responds to Satan. This is a conversation. It's not a one-way thing. And a lot of these encounters with Father Neri, even early on, are very much these dialectical exercises. Now, they're obviously not intended to be dialectical by either of the two members in them, but as Gene Wolfe, the writer, they're very clearly Father Neri attempting to insert some kind of thought and whether Severian's response is the one that Father Inire wants him to have, or just the one that he does happen to have, is clearly goes either way in certain moments. There's, we get to the botanical garden, there's clear moments of like, you are being tempted. This is literal, like, definitional biblical temptation. And there's other moments, such as when he's repairing the paintings, that it's not necessarily clear what Father Inire would want from this encounter, but is clearly somewhat surprised by Severian's response. So it's it's not quite just that Father Inire is uh, controlling him, and it's important to keep that in mind. He's attempting to exert influence, but Severian still very much uh, maintains, how best to put it, Severian doesn't ever do anything in this book he doesn't want to do. Uh, and so sometimes you can clearly see yeah. that frustrating people, uh, specifically Father Inire. There are, there are moments where uh, he straight up seems like an old man clenching his fist and scowling. It's like, <laughs> Yeah. So just to drive the, the point home, I, wa I want to, um, to read to you something from this encounter with Rudasin. And this is at the end where he gives Severian directions. I'm forgetting. You want to visit our master, Ultan. Go back to that arch you just come by. I know the way, I said. That is Severian. The armager told me. The old curator blew those directions to the winds with a puff of sour breath. What he laid down would only get you to the reading room. From there, it'd take you a watch to get to Ultan, if ever you did. So... 
you can read that as some guy just saying, oh, this guy gave you bad directions, but why would that guy give him bad directions, right? Like, why would that guy try and get him to the wrong place, not, not to the library where the masters were trying to get Severian? And why would Rudesend, aka Father Renire, want to intervene and make sure that he reaches Ultan? Well, if only we knew something about the guy who gave Severian the other set of directions. The thing is, we do know something about him. He works for Vodolos. Um, later down the book, this guy appears again as Hildegard, an agent of Vodolos who takes uh, Severian to pluck the flower of the Avil for his duel. He works for, he's an armiger in the service of Vodolos. So you start to see how these forces are fucking around with Severian's life, right? The master sent him to go find Ultan and be acquainted with the mysteries of the library, but this other force is trying to divert him from it. And if you know who Vodolos is, then you know which force I'm talking about. It's the Utark, right? He's trying to get him off this path, and then Father Inire intervenes and gets him on this path. And all of this explains what happens in the first few chapters, right? This back and forth, this flurry of events that overtake Severian's life, even as it seems like nothing is happening, right? Even as Severian is being very mundane, very droll about the entire um, chain of events. Okay, so let's fast forward here, right? Because <laughs> this is taking us so too long as we knew that it would. Um, and let's talk about two other really important events that happen in the first half of the first book. The first one is Severian's first miracle, which is the resurrection of the dog. Is that his first miracle? Uh, Teskele. Yes. When he well, resurrects. What is his first after miracle? After drowning. Yeah, he oh, did that as a boy. that, right. <laughs> well, so... Yikes. You don't think I don't he drowns think he and comes that. back to life? I think... No, I think he drowns, but is brought back to life by one of the Undines. Oh, I could see that. So, we don't even find out about the Undines. Until, <laughs> well, so, I mean, technically, I think we kind of encounter one later, but in this book? I mean, he sees one, he sees yeah. one when he's drowning, right? There's this woman, green woman under the water um, <laughs> who like draws him back to life, basically, right? And we know that Gayol, in Gayol resides an Undyne, which is kind of like a titan. Um, and they're kind of like the enemies of the angels, but not like in a metaphysical sense. They're aliens, right? Who are feasting on Earth's tidal energy yeah we we they're God, uh they happens. have cthulhu um, as well um it's pretty pretty like not even an yeah. illusion you just look at it and you go oh, that's Why cthulhu not? he sleeps under the waves yeah. until he will wake and drink yeah. drink up the uh the minds of the world yeah i've okay <laughs> yeah so I think that she actually rescues him, and then there's the whole question of like why I, I can see that specifically so for, on. again we'll get but, into it. I think it's the third book, the there's more ocean women stuff later. Um, but yeah. Uh yeah. okay, so yeah. discounting that one potentially. So the dog definitely the dog. a miracle. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so again, this is Severian lying to us, right? Like he says that he when he um 
comes out of the library. He's in these spaces beneath the citadel, these like dark caverns, and he comes upon a wounded dog, supposedly. And then he reaches out to touch the dog and see if it's alive. And lo and behold, what a surprise, it's alive. So you could read it like that, right? Like he wasn't sure if it was wounded or alive, and then he touched it and the dog sprang up. But the thing is, the dog is then like healthy and not wounded at all. So what actually happened is that the dog was dead, and Severian, being the conciliator, who really wanted a companion because he was very lonely, because Drott and Roach, his best friends, have already been promoted or about to be promoted to journeyman, um, resurrected the dog right, to, to have a companion. Another explanation, because Triskele disappears and then reappears with Malrubius further down the line, is that Triskele is also an Eidolon, um, encountered by Severian, and that's even more interesting, brought back to life as an Eidolon by Severian. Severian like, activates a program or brings a program back to life, if you will. And um, yeah, now he has a dog. But the dog's not going to stick around for long. <laughs> the dog then disappears and reappears in many other parts. What's interesting is that the scene after the dog <laughs> is the Atrium of Time, uh, which is the second major event in this first half. And the Atrium of Time is another example of Severian lying to us, where he says that the Atrium is filled with um, sundials, right? These sundials that uh, cast their shadow on the Atrium. And that's why the Atrium is called the Atrium of Time, right? Because it has mechanisms that keep time. But those aren't sundials. They're satellite dishes. Right? It's like very obvious yeah, from the description that those we, are satellite we, we dishes. We discussed this you know in... About, uh, yeah. This is a peek behind the curtain. We were discussing this a little bit on Twitter when you, you lucky bastard, picked up that really fancy fucking edition of this that I've been, I've been spying. I gotta get yeah. that. And uh, mentioned offhandedly that yeah. it's illustrated and... In the illustration, it actually depicted them as uh, as satellite dishes, which that one isn't too bold of an interpretive uh, an interpretive touch to the pictures. I mean, because it's it's something that we're mentioning it here because that one's not even really debated amongst people who've read this. That's that's pretty. Um, there are fun fun debates to be had about these books, but that one's pretty much like no, those are satellite dishes. I have a further guess about the atrium of time, yeah. um, but. Uh. I mean, I think that's <laughs> what I was going to say as well. Like, so if they're not sundials, right? If they're not, if the actual physicality of the atrium is not what's measuring time, then why is it called the atrium <laughs> of time? It's probably called the atrium of time because those satellite dishes are what generates the time manipulation mm -hmm. techniques and mechanisms of the citadel. The Citadel exists in multiple times. It exists in the Guild of the Torturer's Time, and there's the Witch, Witch's Tower, which exists in another time, and many other parts of it exist outside of time entirely. And that's what also enables the House Absolute and the House of Asia and the Citadel to exist in the same place, because they just exist kind in of. different um, so... times. <laughs> Thankfully, I know a lot about math, um, and I can explain this part. I just love, the, I just nerd out about this. This is literally nothing but me nerding out for the next second. Um, yeah, go on. So, the first interpretation of the Citadel that you get presented 
is that it's a big complex with a bunch of different towers and they all are different kinds of buildings. This becomes less and less likely even within these initial uh, chapters where he's talking about confusing architecture and retracing the same path but not arriving at the same location. You get warnings about that in the library. And so eventually it becomes pretty clear, especially because if you're if you're reading this, you've read fantasy books, you've read science fiction books, you kind of know something weird is going on. So the first thought is maybe there's funny geometry going on. And that's a little bit true. Well, I'll touch on that in a second. Another one is what Eden just said, which is that what if it's the exact same building, but you're traveling through different time periods of the building? And that same... This is somewhat separate from saying that the outside world changes its time, because that's not always true. There are moments later where people can exit the Madachin Tower into different time periods, but it's the same Madachin Tower. There's other times where you are seeming to move time within just the tower itself. So it gets a little, a little funky there. Um, you then get things like the House Absolute, which have, at times, completely different architecture as well. And this sort of posits that the specific kind of spaceship they're in is maybe something closer to like a four-dimensional spaceship that intersects in three-dimensional space. And so depending on how you rotate the ship, mm -hmm. it's all one big ship, but only this one little part is intersecting with the world at a time. And so as you spin this big circle, you know, only this little wedge can interact with the physical world as we know it, but all of the rest of it still is there. Um, I, oh, Jesus, I find this shit amazing. This is, it, along with the library, that's his little touch of Borges of like, what if I throw very surreptitiously some upper level math at you? Of I'm like, oh, yeah, G give it to me. Yeah. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> So, in the atrium of time, he meets a person, Valeria. And he spends some time with this person, and we, we find out some interesting things about this person. We find out that she's a scion of an exultant family, which, remember, those are the lords, the nobles of the setting, and that they're waiting for the Utak to leave Earth. That doesn't happen. Like, that's not a thing <laughs> in Severian's time. Right? The, the Utark is not going anywhere. That's because Valeria is not from Severian's time. She's from Severian's past. Well, the Utark was um, someone else, right? Like a different Utark who had some reason to leave Earth. Maybe there was still some remnants of the transgalactic empire still in uh, transsolar empire, sorry, still in place. But it just doesn't coalesce with the events of Severian's timeline because it's not part of it. Now, another important thing about Valeria, which will be important for the entire series, is Severian's reaction to her. Immediately when Severian sees her, he falls in love with her. He says that, in fact, she's the woman he will most love throughout this entire thing. And he's going to fall in love with a lot of women uh, during these books. But she's like the one and only. And again, if we spoil, she ends up his, as his wife. 
um, at the end of the story. He also describes her like he describes many other women in the book as having a particular kind of face and that her face makes him react in a very powerful way. He's drawn to her. He has to have her. He has to love her. His heart just bursts with emotion for her. Whenever Severian describes a woman like that, having immense emotions for her and the specific heart-shaped face and the way that she makes him feel, this tells us that this woman is related to Severian in some way. And this is uh, maybe the time to talk about the elephant in the room. There's a lot oh, yeah. of incest in these books. But, but it's not gratuitous. The point is not the incest. The point is that Severian is an Oedipus figure. Um, he is basically cursed with incest. Because his interactions with the world are spread out across time, because there are several Severians, because there are time loops... He's basically cursed into having sex with um, a lot of his familial line. In fact, um, Valeria is probably his maternal grandmother. We meet his paternal grandmother later in the book, but we don't meet his maternal grandmother. The, the evidence for Valeria being his maternal grandmother is that Severian is always described as an exultant, right? People mistake him for one. He's tall, like an exultant. And a lot of the what we can piece together from how Severian looks puts him ha- as similar to all those women that he covets, right? Including Valeria. So... It's it, yeah. it's it's worth that, noting hilarious. here for people who may be like uh, utterly icked out by how much, um, especially as you read between the lines, like how much not just incest, but incestuous desire is caked into this, that this is again where the. The allegorical elements of the story come to bear again, because through the lens of Severian as a Christ yeah. figure, it bears that he would then be related to all of the world because in a certain way, his dad is the dad of all of the world. So he is at best siblings at worst cousins with every living thing. This allegorical element is clearly part of that incestuousness because there is the component of the, uh, the, the church being the bride of Christ and the marriage of the world into, uh, so the notion of marriage from a religious sense is the joining of two bodies into one. And so the marriage of the world into Christ is making the world uh, one with Christ. Um, and so that component is very much baked into what's going on here. Um, so it's I mentioned that because I, it can obviously read to someone is like oh do i really want to read a book with just like loads and loads of incest and it's like it the thematic component there is what's carrying it not so much the literal component he as eden mentioned wolf is not gratuitous with the um the crass component of that which would be really gross <laughs> to be honest um he thankfully leans yeah. far more in the other direction um this also winds up playing a role in something that's a thematic backbone of the entire series. Um, 
but will already be apparent. So we're talking about Severian as a Christ figure and as um, the fact that there is an autark and a torturer and he's on this path towards the autark. It's not a big spoiler to guess that he becomes the autark. That's you've read a fantasy story. You know how the low becomes high, yada, yada. In fact, the low becomes high in those fantasy stories very typically because they're deliberately or indeliberately mirroring the Christ parallel itself, but whatever, you know, born from a manger into the throne of heaven, all that stuff. But uh, here specifically, yeah. we get some curious turns. Severian isn't born into a manger. He's born into a guild of torturers. Um, he's abandoned to become a killer. Like these don't fit the Christ figure whatsoever. Um, he's also a liar, which doesn't really. So obviously there's some pretty big breakages. It would feel like, oh, well, maybe he's throwing some other uh, components in here. We'll, we'll get into this a good bit later. And if we go into the further books after Book of the New Sun, it becomes blindingly apparent. But one of the components to think about with the time loop is are we after the current time on Earth or are we before it? And this plays into if you have a four dimensional ship that can rotate through the world, is this the only world? And is this the only. If there's one Christ spirit, does that mean that there's only one body of Jesus? And these are just sort of lingering mysteries that sort of fill out. Um, there's a big guess that Severian is like a prototype of the Christ figure and that this is somehow, even though it's set in the future, it is before um, the events of the Bible somehow because wiggly time, whatever. Um, this actually touches on something yeah. about the book that I wanted to ask you, Eden, specifically, um, that I, reads to me somewhat mm -hmm. as intensely Catholic... Um, uh, anti-Semitism on the part of Gene Wolfe. Um, so famously, you know, within the story of Christ, he gets his he gets his tutelage early on um, from the rabbis at the temple, and that's you know that's you can see the parallel there with the library. He even he clearly picks up a basically a Bible or a book of um, like rabbinical study that he gives to Thecla um, that he refers to quite often because he'll open up this funny brown book that he gives Thecla, who is uh, um, brought into the guild to be tortured and is the first person that he betrays. Um, it betrays in a funny way. I'll, I'll, we'll maybe touch on that in a second. Um, but one of the books that he brings her that she requests is clearly a book of biblical study because um, he reads from it and these are very obvious books are stories of both Jewish and Christian origin. Um, but he's also brought up in the Guild of the Torturers. And this only clicked with me recently, uh, Eden. Is is he citing blood libel? Is he calling the rabbis <laughs> torturers because yeah. they tortured Christ? Is that like, this clicked with me this time. And I was like, oh my God. <laughs> like, So, I <laughs> don't really think so, because the way that I see it, it's a kind of um, a statement on the meek shall inherit the earth. And in my eyes, 
the torturers guild is um rome right or i could an that. extension of rome right? the utark is rome right the torturers guild is are the blind executors of the imperial will right and in that sense i think that wolf's relations to them is forgive them father for they know not what they do right it's implicitly sorry explicitly pointed out throughout the book and the torturers and the masters are adamant about it and severian is adamant about it later as a representative of them that they don't know what their prisoners did and they don't care they are there to execute punishment completely divorced of justice in fact later on in the second book severian executes a woman who he clearly believes was innocent or at least was unfairly treated like morwana in the in the village in the in salus right or saltus i don't remember what it's called um so i think it's more the torturers are this blind executor of the imperial will and that's where the messiah comes from right? that's where the messiah is educated right that that's where he gets his lessons in apathy pain um turning a blind eye not caring about truth and so on right and th- those are all the things that he needs to shed during his exile in order to become the messiah now we're gonna go back to the storyline just a second but if i've already opened it i think that's the story of the books right like severian's journey is a journey of learning empathy right um one of the catholic answers to why god had to send his son to earth is so that his son learns to love humanity right because christ has to love humanity and understand his own humanity if he is to stand in our stead for the original sin right so that's what's happening to severian like he goes up in this sheltered place where justice doesn't matter and empathy is a weakness and dealing pain is a virtue but then as he goes deeper and deeper into his exile he understands um love and empathy and duty and all those things and now here's the hot take that's the new son right that's the sense in which severian brings legitimately believe that that's actually something that i've thought for for a bit so you're in good company here um yeah because people are like wait but severian didn't bring about the new son but he did he did by replacing the soulless lifeless rule of the utark slash father inire with the rule of we can actually ground Um, this directly in the story so later I forget exactly where it is. Um, he's he's talking to Dorcas, <laughs> which is the funniest name in the book. Also, we haven't really like no, we're not even we're not. close so, to introducing uh, her. Oh, look! This is, a, this, is a, look, this is a mess. You didn't come here. <laughs> we're not doing a chapter by chapter read through. That would take an eternity. Like we're doing our damnedest yeah. to try to make this legible. Yeah. Um, but, uh. Yeah. So to cover a little bit of the story leading up to arriving at Dorcas, um, 
God, that's such a funny name. I'm a child. Um, he gets exiled. He's wandering through. He encounters some strange people in the uh, in the city. Okay, no, no, no. <laughs> just go to Dolkus. Yeah, it's like, go, oh my God, I'm realizing how much happens. Um, so at one point, he's talking to this woman yeah, yeah. named Dorcas, and he mentions that in the funny book that he's reading. Um, again, it's clearly either the Bible or a commentary on the Bible. Um, that stories can be read in one of three ways. Um, what he proceeds to give is not just a mm-hmm. good explanation of this book. That's actually a really good explanation of how to approach art in general. Um, it's, it's a really, really good explanation. So he opens with all three of the things I'm about to say are of equal value. And that's important to remember equal, not just that they have value, but they are equally as valuable as one another at all times. The first is that a story is the series of events that it's talking about. So in that way, if talking about Book of the New Sun, we would just tell you the plot beat by beat. And that clearly is is important because that's what's written down. That's that's undeniably as much a part of the story as anything else. Um, The second is its symbolic function. Like, what are these things representing and what do those representations mean? when you put them in concert with one another. So it's no longer these two characters talking, it's these two symbols are acting upon one another in this way. And then the third one on some level is like, why did someone feel compelled to make this thing? Like what causes this? That's sort of like the metafictional function. Um, I loosely paraphrased it because he actually goes into pretty good depth about it. It's only about a page long when he describes it, but um, this captures exceptionally well. uh, This is Gene Wolfe literally not only telling you how to read in general, by the way, that's incredibly good advice for any like art criticism period, Um, but also how to read this book specifically that Obviously, the events of Book of the New Sun, as they're literally told, are important. But you wouldn't gain anything from us telling you that. You'd you'd gain that from reading it. Um, the thing that we're better equipped to talk about are these other funny symbolic functions. Um, I bring this up because this there's a lot of this book that is him telling you about the fourth book. Like, a lot. <laughs> um, there's a play later on that is literally like the plot of the fourth book, like period. It's just the whole plot. Um, but this specifically yeah. is what I had always read Eden as him saying, like the new sun is a new era. And like, th- that's not even a big like leap linguistically yeah. that it's like, it's not, it's presented in a quite literal way, but just as later we learn literally in the very next book, that the Claw of the Conciliator, this funny diamond that appears in this book as well, isn't really a diamond, or it's not valuable because it's a diamond. It's valuable for this other thing that that we'll get to when we talk about that book. Um, That likewise, the new sun, I don't know how people could read this and go, no, that's the one thing that's literal. Just just that one. (laughs) Like, Everything else has been funny word games from Gene yeah. Wolfe, but that one is literally some like, maybe it's a spaceship, maybe it's uh, rejuvenating the sun, but 
No, I'm with you. That the the new sun itself reads to me always as the the era of Christ's effulgence. That it's like now that granted that ra- that comes back to my my theory of like it. it I I kind of think the the autark is um is Severian as well, but that's whatever. <laughs> okay, so let's let's wrap this up and try to get to a point where we can finish this first um, i could i could hit some some quick beats on some people that we run into so he leaves and he runs into their names don't matter wait 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 we haven't done that oh, yeah no, no, there's still one like really big character <laughs> there's still like oh, fuck me there's like two we got we got three four really important characters that we're gonna we have to hit have these to discuss before we stop this so yeah, so Thecla. Um, Thecla is a noble that is imprisoned by the Utark in the Torturers Guild, and she sparks Severian's betrayal. And going back to empathy, Severian's betrayal is to provide her with a quick death. Unlike the death that was planned for her, as she is hit by perhaps the Torturers worst device in fact described as the worst device that makes her hands want to kill her kind of like divides her body against herself and Severian gives her a knife making that death quick the, the, the hands um, cut her throat instead of you know taking a month um, to kill her which is very interesting first of all who's who's Thecla um and second of all, what is her importance in the story? Um, well, first of all, Tekla, you might say, the first question you, you ask when women are introduced in the story is, are they related to Severian? And there's contradictory evidence in the first book as Severian tells you the events, again, he lies, um, because on one hand, she has that face, right? She has that face that Severian is drawn to, and he falls in love with her, which would say that she's related to him. But on the other hand, he doesn't have sex with her, right? Which would imply that <laughs> that's she's the funniest not fuck sentence. I'm Here's sorry, that she doesn't have he doesn't have sex with her, so yeah. she can't be uh, related yeah. to him. <laughs> right. Here's the thing: they do have sex, though. Um, yeah. Severin doesn't tell us then. He does tell us. Later on in the books, oh, by the way, yeah, I totally had sex with her. Like, okay, you didn't, you didn't, you didn't feel like that was important to mention when you were talking about. He also like describes his love to her in such a Christ-like manner, right? Like, I loved her idea, I loved her um, potential, I loved her brain. Like, yeah, dude, but you also had sex with her, right? So, Thecla is um, most often considered to be Severian's aunt. Um which implies a few things. First of all, it's very clear from Thecla's description that she is almost identical and very similar, at least, to the woman that was with Vodolus when um, Vodolus was robbing the grave. Thecla is also um, a noble, uh, like a, a powerful noble in the Utak's court. And one thing we know about those nobles is that they all have clones. And those clones, that's like explicitly explained. The clones are um, maintained 
in lieu of their actual bodies as as hostages by the Utak. In fact, we encounter that clone when Severian goes to the house Azure to have his um, first sexual experience when the woman he chooses called Thea. Thea? Thecla. Right? There's a lot of these um, name games in the book. Thea is the same clone, same person that Severian saw when Vodolus was um, robbing the grave. So that's the first beat we gotta hit, right? Severian's betrayal is what sets him on the path of exile, which makes Thecla a very important character, right? She's like, um, man, why is this the example that I have in my mind? Nietzsche's donkey? Yeah, like Nietzsche seeing the donkey and going one. insane. I mean, it's accurate, though. I mean, I, I was going to say like Mary yeah. Magdalene, but like, you know, that one, that one works. <laughs> yeah, Mary Magdalene. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's the obvious one, right? Like, she's the object towards which empathy is first felt, which sets the subject of the story on the path to and not know, even just break the not world, even just empathy. Right? Like he like, feels say, love, and it's it's very apparent when he talks later that this is a sincere love, yeah. um, and that bringing her death is something that haunts him and is his first. Like that deeper function of empathy, empathy, obviously being the bigger name, the encapsulating shell of these more complex emotions, but that feeling of like wanting to have saved her and feeling in a way that he did, but ha like, yeah, it, it, she, she sits inside of him. I guess technically Nietzsche's donkey did that as well. And that, um, only he went insane. Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, you could say that insanity you know, one of my favorite memes is imagining yeah. how weird Christ was as a kid. Um, like, you just live in Galilee, right? And this kid, like, starts prophesizing you and telling you truths from beyond. And, like, he has these weird eyes cutting through you. And he looks insane. Right? So ins Severian is also sometimes perceived by others as insane. There's something about the divine which, you know, breaks the world. I, I'm not saying that Nietzsche was divine or yeah. anything like that, but like in a literary, metaphorical way, those things are related. Okay, so we're going to skip over St. Catherine, and we'll talk to her about her when we introduce Jolanta, um, I think in, in the second book. She's introduced in the first one, but not really deeply. And yeah, we get like book, a glancing blow Jolenta. By the way... Yeah, if anyone's like listening and has already read all those books, yes, I am implying that Jolenta is the actress hired to play Saint Catherine in the Feast of the Torturers, and I'm actually going to imply that she's Severian's mother. Um, and yes, Severian does rape Jolenta, and he does yeah. rape his own mother. Okay, we'll talk about that when we get to Jolenta. Fast forward, Severian goes on his exile, he's walking through Nessus, and he has a problem. And the problem is the Fuligen cloak. This black, beyond black cloak is not something that people are used to seeing or that they feel comfortable seeing. Side note, some people say that it's just because the Torturer's Guild is you know, separate from society and nobody really knows them and they're recluses. But I don't think that holds water because people have literally forgotten that Torturers exist. 
I think this is another evidence that the Citadel exists. Yeah, there's in a light implications the that it's like seeing fact, a Minotaur yeah. or like seeing like a Roman centurion just walk down the middle of Broadway uh, in New York. That they're like, what in the fuck? Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. So he needs to hide his cloak, and in order to do that, he goes into a clothier shop. Well, he goes into, I say, but he's actually seduced into it by yet another woman who he immediately falls in love with. And in fact, he describes her in the most um, rapturous way, like most physically attractive woman. Severian's, a, yet, or will Severian's see, a pretty dude's rock Jolanda. kind of guy. His one weakness, babes. <laughs> yeah, he's, yeah, he's extremely horny. Um, and he's like just like immediately is smitten by a very visceral physical sort of desire for her. Is there a moment in any of these books where someone attempts to seduce him and it doesn't work? Because I, I I'm like I think it's a one hundred percent success rate. No. <laughs> yeah, and I think that's actually an interesting point, right? Like he's so filled with this naivete and this passion and love for things that he's very easily taken advantage of. So inside the clothier shop, there's the guy selling his wells. Side note, he's wearing two masks. It's a whole yeah. thing. Just forget it. It doesn't really matter. <laughs> Her name is Agia, and his name is Agilus. Now, remember Thea, Thecla, Agia, Agilus, their siblings. And also, Severian is attracted to someone and wants to have sex with them. So we know what that means. That means that she's related to him. Agia and Agilus are uh, wildly considered as his cousins um, by way of not Thecla, not his maternal cousin, but his paternal cousins. Um, this is hinted at all sorts of ways. Like, for example, they are familiar with the inn where Severian's father works. They are perhaps familiar with Severian's father um, because he, he, like his father knows to warn Dorcas about Agia. Um, and in general, they're presented in almost like um, a saint-like manner. There's a moment in the cell after they're captured where they're literally, their heads are being uh, outlined by a halo. I have a, right, this, is, this is where uh, so my... Agia, uh, yeah. I intersect with my fun theory again. Um, so we see the name game thing. And the only other times that we really see the name game are when there's either a body stand in or in the case of exultants, a clone. Um, and this, obviously they're not exultants. That's pretty well described. Um, so it doesn't necessarily immediately lead us to think they're clones, but there's also that sense of is Severian related to them. And Severian we know has at least exultant bloodline like the, he's described in similar manners he's mistaken for them and with the time loop stuff and the clone stuff this is actually one of the fundamental bits of why i tend to think a lot of the characters are severian in some fashion or another that very like y your interpretation of them being like related through a family tree is parallel to mine that they are either clones of uh, recurring instances of Severians, of previous Severians. Like, there's not necessarily strong evidence that 
the Severian we're following isn't himself a clone or a failed clone that gets abandoned at the tower. Um, so. So I'm going to I'm going to say something that I can only say about this book. The problem with that and the problem with my theory as well is that Agia is clearly a robot. <laughs> um, she is. She is, though. She's described several times. So one time she jumps into a cult and her weight is off. Like she's lighter than she's supposed to be. And then the other time in the cell after their plans fall through, she sm- smacks her head on stone and it's literally described as ringing out. Right? Um, now, <laughs> this also ties into why is she so damn sexy, for lack of a better word, and that's because she is Hethor's yep. missing puppet. Um, Hethor, who's an old guy, maybe Father Inire, start <laughs> to see why this gets confusing, um, describes that he's lost some sort of, I, I'm sorry, but sex robot, Um designed to be voracious and voluptuous and then you see this agia um who's clearly a robot and is also voluptuous anyway what i do like about your theory though is that agilus is very clearly interested in terminus est and like i get it terminus Est is awesome and it's probably worth a lot of money but is that really why he's so obsessed with the sword maybe he's obsessed with it because he's severian and he somehow recognizes the sword Anyway, Agilus and Agia um, have a plan. The plan is to... Agia uh, puts on armor and pretends to be a noble warrior who challenges Severian to the death. It's implied that this is not the first time they're doing this plot. And then when the guy dies, um, they take his armor, right? Because whoever wins in the duel um, has rights to the person's belongings. So that way they want to get Terminus Est and throughout, um, through the lead up to the to duel, to um, Agia specifically keeps trying to tempt him to like, well, why don't you just drop all your belongings, especially that sword, by the way, and just run, just run. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, okay, but this <laughs> is Gene Wolf. So obviously the, the duel is not conducted with swords. It's conducted with a plant. The plant is called the Avern plant, and th- this one's a bit obvious because to aver, sorry, the Avern, and to aver is to assert the truth of something. This Avern is an alien plant, like it's explicitly said that it's an alien plant, um, found in the botanical gardens. We're going to speed past all of that. Severian sees the future and the past, our past, by the way, like planes are mentioned in a hut. Forget all of that. Um, there's a witch living in a cave. We're going to meet that witch later in that same cave. Forget about all of that. They go and they go to find this Avon. But on the way, we get introduced to our third super important character, Dorcas. Dorcas is a woman who is dead and has been entombed in... Okay, so we definitely uh, agree uh, about that part with Dorcas. I was, I was going to ask. Uh, oh, yeah. Oh, he resurrects yeah. her. <laughs> yeah, so um, Dorcas is dead, and she's buried in this lake where people are buried, you know, traditionally to preserve their body. And here we go. 
now it gets really crazy <laughs> there's an old guy <clears throat> who is looking for Dorcas and he can't find her even though he's the one that placed her in the lake how convenient so old guy father Inire, right so he's looking for Dorcas and Severian in his um, attempt to get to the Avon stumbles reaches into the water a hand grabs him from the other side and who should he pull out but Dorcas the same person that this boatman father Inire, was looking for now, father Inire says that he was looking for this Dorcas because she was his love she was his wife um, and he's telling the truth she was his wife when they were young and he lost her when she was extremely young perhaps younger than 18 which kind of works with what we know about father Inire and his predilection for young girls but here's the thing if father Inire was married to Dorcas then Dorcas's offspring are also father Inire's offspring but one thing that we quickly discover about Dorcas is that she is the mother of someone called Owen. Like he literally leaves her a note and says, <laughs> you are my mother, come again. He, like, he, he wants to warn her about Agia and about Severian, who's a torturer. <laughs> but here's the thing. Owen is Severian's father. Right? Um, like it's when you read it the first time, you, you you there's no way for you to get it, right? But then when you reread it, um, certain things start to to coalesce. Do you want to take us through like the evidence? I for don't Owen being remember final? it because the book is so dense and my brain has to pick certain parts to remember. Um, <laughs> I get I get fixated on how this entire first book feels like uh, almost like a rewrite of Bunyan's Pilgrim's uh Pilgrim's Progress. Uh that's my that's my that's my literary degree coming out. I went into so much debt for that thing. Um <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So Owen is actually like one of the most contested um points like people don't really accept that Owen um that Owen is Severian's um father, but there's this part where Owen shows Severian a locket that contains a picture of his mother and it's very clearly Dorcas. And also again, Owen tells Dorcas, You are my mother, um, comes again. And then the innkeeper at that inn, which is right outside where the duel is to take place just randomly as a side note says that owen really resembles his mother's picture but when you look at him from a profile he looks very like Severian. oh shit i forgot about that oh shit <laughs> now, yeah so and here's another thing do you know what um what the name owen i don't means? remember I know that I used to know because so I had a childhood Owen, friend named Owen who is very, very religious, and I remember it as something to do with Hebrew, but... So, 
Owen is the Welsh oh. name for Jean. Oh. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so, right. So, and then in reverse proof about Owen and Dorcas. So, Owen being Dorcas's son is um, factual. Like, there's no argument about that. It's literally just said. And then Severian falls in love with Dorcas. Like, Dorcas is his main love, even though Valeria is his strongest love. So if Severian loves Dorcas, and Dorcas is Owen's uh, mother, then who is Dorcas? She's Severian's grandmother, right? And to unspool this further, if Dorcas is Severian's grandmother, his grandfather is Father Inire. Okay? And now comes one of my favorite parts about all of this. (laughs) fucking nonsense why is father inire called father inire he's not actually a religious figure like he's not actually a member of a church he's not actually a father christianity doesn't exist there are no other characters in the book called father something it's just father inire that's gene wolf literally laughing in your face that's Gene Wolf saying, you idiot, you imbecile, you absolute buffoon. I told you. I literally called him Father Inire. So, okay, he's the grandfather, not the father. But I was literally telling you there was one character called Father, and you didn't, you didn't think that was He's like additionally like the paternal grandfather. It's not even like... So you even have the pre- preservation of father yeah. in this. Yeah. Okay. Are you pissed off yet? Are you confused yet? It's I, okay. We're not even close I, to that. I need to um, talk about so, the garden. Thankfully, I can talk about the garden in a big web. I don't have to dive into specifics for it. Um, that would take forever. That would literally be an eternity. Yeah. Some of, the, some of the chapters in the garden are legit two pages long, and you could probably take dozens of pages explicating on them. Um, there's... In fact, people have. <laughs> There's lots and lots of exegetical reads. Eden talked a little bit about it, about the hut. And when is the hut is a good question. But that can break down even further. When are the figures in the hut? Are they the same time? Um, I don't need to elaborate on that. It gets really confusing really fast. The primary thing that you see, though, is something contained within this same garden are not just the Averns, although it's important that they're there, too but also the claw of the conciliator and specifically the cult that seems to worship the claw. He got, he gets into more specifics there and that's interesting. But the important thing is that the claw is there, the claw itself, which again is a bunny diamond. I call it a funny diamond because it's described as a diamond and you get literal descriptions of it that describe it as a diamond. But again, he pretty, pretty bluntly tells you that this is an allegorical object. Um, again, he gives the description to Dorcas later from the book of all things are three things at once. And this is almost, um, the specific language he gives are, uh, things can also be signs and the signs can be very inscrutable, but they're always signs. Um, this is actually quite literally, um, Christian doctrine that all of the world being controlled by God is 
is a communication with the world. That's where the Bi the Bible comes from the world, not the other way around, because everything's a communication. Um, everything's both a symbol and a communication. And so in the sense, the claw isn't mm -hmm. a diamond. It's a diamond because it's valuable. It represents peak, peak value um, in a certain way. And the best way that I've learned to understand the garden in general and the claw is obviously you get a Christ figure going into a garden. You get a little bit of Gethsemane, you get a little or Gethsemane and a little bit of Eden. Not my co-host, although potentially. Were they inside a few Eden? <laughs> but uh, oh, no. so those parts are pretty obvious to read on an allegorical level there. You know, we get the temptation there um, with uh, the boatsman, Father Neri as the boatsman attempting quite fervently and Agia as well attempting quite fervently come fuck me over here and then you can run away um it's and literally one of the things that Christ gets tempted with in the desert is uh physical pleasure so this is pretty by the books kind of thing but then we don't necessarily get if the cult is here and they have the claw and the, the claw of the conciliator and it's so valuable how come no one's pursuing them and if there are these funny figures uh, of like a hut from the past and a plane from our time, but a tribesman who doesn't seem to be from either our time or the future, he seems like like a proto-human in a certain way, like like a caveman who just came out. And then there's clearly someone from the future, but they seem like an astronaut, maybe, may, maybe a time traveler. There's lots of mechanical ways that you could read what's going on in the garden. Like, are they time traveling? Are they? But again, the best way that I've learned to interpret the series of chapters that occur within the garden is that it's almost like a time collapse point. That the claw of the conciliator seems to draw all of these fragments toward itself. Um, obviously, unconsciously, because it's a it's a diamond. It's not a living thing. And that these are sort of fractals converging onto a single point, which is the claw of the conciliator. Um, this, it winds up being uh, immensely important to understand, again, all of the book, um, because the same thing happens with Severian. People from various times come to visit Severian or seem to be drawn to Severian. He doesn't seem to know why this is happening or even that it's happening a lot of times. Because again, he has perfect memory, but he doesn't, he isn't omniscient. He just has perfect memory. So there are certain moments where he isn't quite lying that someone emerges and he tells you how he perceives them. And maybe later he does know, but maybe in that moment, he didn't really know who they were. Maybe he's omitting details about them, but he doesn't, he isn't necessarily aware, oh, this person is an angel. Um, I'll touch on that in a second as well. Um, the fact that Severian is to become the conciliator, and they refer to him, it, it's pretty easy to pick up, even within this first book, that that's, that that's what's going to happen. Again, you've read fantasy before, you've read sci-fi. Yeah. It's the whole King Arthur mythos, you know, you get a little hint of it, and it's not really a spoiler to say, like, yeah, he becomes the mythic guy. This is where we get a uh, something that comes from 
older stances of uh, of kings. Uh, so we have King Arthur is bound is as bound to Camelot itself and to Excalibur itself and to the Grail as he is to his own identity. These are, in a certain way, extensions of King Arthur. The Round Table is King Arthur. Camelot is his body. This is why when King Arthur dies, Camelot falls, because they're the same. Um, this doesn't make sense in a literal sense, obviously, but on the allegorical level, this is, you know, when Christ passes away, peace passes away, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so much as the way that Terminus Est is Severian in a certain way, they're extensions of one another, they penetrate one another. Likewise, Severian being the conciliator is the claw of the conciliator. It's He says that Agia must have placed the gem into his possession when they were there, and that's a certain obvious literal read that could have occurred. But the one that I favor is more that the claw was drawn to him. Whether it was drawn to him through Agia placing it like into his possession or not, there's clearly they were bound for one another. And exactly. Kind of like, like one ring, right? And this is where, again, even though it's science fiction, Gene Wolfe is as much a literary writer and an allegorical writer and a fantasy writer all at once, all within this, as much as science fiction. So you do have to kind of break yourself of how specifically did it come into his possession that there is that element of fatedness. And I mean, we even get this in Sandman by, by Neil Gaiman later that I guarantee he drew from this when Sandman gets his gem back um, that yeah. Yeah. they belong to one another. The claw, the conciliator, it, this becomes literal later on. We will we, we'll get to that in the later books where it happens, but that's his gem. Um, and so they find each other again. This is important because the nature of the garden being this microcosm where fragments from seemingly all of time converge to it. It's not that the claws doing something. It's not asking these people to show up. They just are. They just are drawn to it. This explains Severian. In a broader way, that also explains the entire role of Shadow of the Torturer in the broader scheme. What's funny is I imagine we're going to have less to say and less crenellations to dive into in certain later books, <laughs> partly because yeah. Shadow yeah, sure. Shadow's function is telling you how the rest of the book will work to the point where literally some um there's a play at the tail end of the book that is the plot of one of the later books as I mentioned before. Like yeah. So <laughs> Let's let's bring things together, right? Um, and and push towards towards the end of this. So the next uh, flashpoint is the duel itself, where Severian performs his third miracle um, with the Avon. So Severian loses the duel. I actually really like that he loses the duel. Like there's so much build up. He's like, oh, I and he loses I'll like win. immediately he loses. too. Like, like, he loses. It's... Yeah. And he kind of loses because Agilus, who is the noble in disguise, kind of cheats um, in, in the way that he uses the Avon. But he loses. He gets one of these uh, leaves inside of him, which have a deadly poison that instantly kills you. But Severian doesn't die. Of course Severian doesn't die. 
if Severin was able to resurrect the dog and was able to resurrect Dorcas, finally he is able to resurrect himself. And that progression of things is actually pretty important because, first of all, like I said, the Mi actually inherit the elf. He starts by resurrecting the lowest of the low, right? Like a, a stray dog that no one owns. It's actually described in the book as the littlest miracle, right? He starts from resurrecting the low, then he moves through resurrecting others, and finally he resurrects himself. Um, and even though he should be dead, they all uh, make good their escape. Agia and Agilus are captured, um, supposedly to be punished and never to be seen again. Or are they? Uh, they might creep up again later, by which I mean they will, at least Agia. Um, and Severian with Dorcas make their way and meet up with Baldanders and... Uh, oh, fuck, what's the name of yeah. the guy? Talos. <laughs> so, we really don't have time to get into this, and we'll talk more about them when they do their actual play, because here we only get, like, a snippet of the play. But suffice it to say, Baldanders is, like, one of the most powerful creatures that we encounter in the book, and one of the only creatures that's, like, equal to Severian in many ways. Um... He's an undyne. He's definitely maybe. not human. He's some sort like, of giant. He, 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 you're like, that guy is not human. Not I don't know human. what he is. He is not a dude. Yeah. And interestingly enough, he has like a Hulk thing going on because he's massive physically and he plays as if he's stupid, but he's actually a very clever and advanced scientist who performs genetic experimentations on himself. And he actually built Talos. Talos is a robot um, that kind of serves... Baldanders. He's very erratic. He's very he's always all over the place. He's always subservient to Baldanders for some reason, even though Baldanders is supposedly subservient to him. Um, and he's just like a weird guy. And they're doing like a traveling play, and they're also joined by Jolenta. And the last thing we see as the book closes is Severian, Dorcas, Jolenta, Talos, and Baldanders making their way outside of Nessus. There's some sort of disturbance, and the book ends. And that's literally where it ends. And if you're, you're asking yourselves, wait, what was that disturbance? <laughs> he skips Bad it. Bad luck, you'll he never know. He skips it, like, by a lot, he just too. <laughs> he skips it. Yeah. There's, like, months in between the first book and the second book. Okay. Loose ends. Before we wrap all this up, like stuff we have to mention, Dorcas and Severian see a structure <laughs> and it's literally go up into one the sky. At I the don't tail know. End yeah, yeah. And I don't know why there's so much disagreement about this online. Yeah. It's clearly it's, a spaceship taking off. Like, there's literally only two explanations yeah. that I th and I think they actually fit within each other. One is on one level, it's a miraculous. Uh, vision of a church hung in the air. That's a pretty bog standard allegorical thing that like, okay, duh. And then on the literal end, it's a fucking spaceship. That's what the red windows casting light, their propulsion. Like it's, uh, yeah, I, I see people yeah. like, what is that? Why didn't he go into it? And I'm like, how do you, how are you this illiterate? Like. One of the things that I see people talking about is the, um, 
the tent of the Pelerines, which later on in the second book is described as lifting off from the heat of the fire. And that's what's, what they're actually seeing. Yeah. But there's no indication of that. It doesn't look like a tent. It looks like a structure that's lifting off. It's a spaceship taking off. Now, you could say it's just a spaceship taking off. It doesn't have anything to do with Severian. It's like there are spaceships all over the place because we know there are towers and citadels all over the place and those are actually spaceships. But I think that's a cop-out. I think this is the Book of the New Sun and nothing is a coincidence. I think that as Severian nears you know, leaving the city, a part of the plan is completed and someone goes to report, right? To report back to whoever it is extraterrestrially that the plan is in motion, right? So the spaceship could be one of the masters taking off. It could be some other actor we're unaware of, but I don't think it's um, a coincidence because I don't think there are coincidences. And given that seemingly no one else seems to see it, um, which adds to the... Yeah, adds to adds to the sense of miraculousness yeah. that we can associate both with the angel figures, which again show up in not just later books, but later series from this. They literally don't appear directly within this, at least not named. Um, but we can additionally see it as that same sense of multi polydimensional ships rotating out of reality, that it isn't just that it took off into space. But it, yeah, and that seems pretty, it, it fulfills both functions, which are primary to the, to the telling of this story. At all moments, there's the, again, I can't, you can't really talk about this book without talking about Pilgrim's pro uh, Progress, um, or you can't if you're not, if you're me. <laughs> that one's actually a pretty, pretty quick one. It's an, it was an early allegorical novel, um, out of out of England, uh, written by a guy named Bunyan, um, gets referenced all the time. It's one of those books where if you study Western literature and especially literature drawing from English traditions, which this obviously does, um, it shows up all the time. It's like the quintessential, um, the quintessential allegorical novel about man's ascension towards heaven and Christ's ascension towards godliness. And he, he bakes a lot of that into here. And so there's that standard bit of a miraculous vision of a church hung in the air and, you know, the, the song of the angels and all this stuff. And then also it's a sci-fi novel. So it's a spaceship. I, the fact that people don't, yeah put that together is is perennially mystifying to me because there are some there are some riddles in this as as we talked about on this episode there's some things where <laughs> eden eden was the smart timekeeper one we you can go so fucking deep literally just on shadow yeah we <laughs> yeah there's like at least like 30 or 40 percent we still and like at all let alone the, the full bit yeah, of them we are going to but, and even you were you're definitely yeah. smart to be like no langdon no <laughs> but <laughs> I, I, yeah to be clear i also have to tell myself no right like i also have to understand myself but it's not not to go too deep into this this isn't one of those mysteries in my opinion like there are uh yeah i no. had to i had to contain myself in talking about the garden because that has had so much written about it. But this one feels pretty, pretty by the books. Yeah. So last loose end, which will actually close this all off, is what I said about the Avern and to Aver, to 
to s- deliver the truth, to find the truth. And that ties into um, why, what is the shadow of the torturer's purpose? What is it all building up to? If you read it the, the, on the level that it was, one of the levels that it was supposed to be read on. So I, th- I said that there were three resurrections and the number three should of course like ring all the biblical bells in your head. The little resurrection, then Dorcas's resurrection, and then finally Severin's resurrection. Severin's resurrection is a reaction to the leaf of the avil, to the leaf of truth, to the penetration of truth. And through that resurrection, something is revealed. It, it is revealed that Severian is the conciliator. That doesn't happen in the fifth book. It doesn't happen in the fourth one. It happens in the shadow of the torturer. If you read it as an allegory, as a progression of the Messiah from complete ignorance of himself through the beginning of realizations that he is something more, and finally to the manifestation of his full powers and in, in the pages after he's resurrected, Severian pretends that he doesn't understand. He understands. He understands what happened. He's not an idiot. He says, but I didn't die from the Avalon yeah. and I'm not sure why. That's bullshit. Like, he knows that this plant was supposed to kill and yet he lives. And that's the moment that he also starts to change. He also starts to approach the world in a different way. That is the point of the shadow of the torturer. And in a sense, the entire story is contained within this first book, right? Someone who comes from ignorance and comes into his full potential. So in a very Gene Wolfe fashion, I'd like to um, (laughs) end this discussion, this episode, with the very first words that The Shadow of the Torturer opens with. That's not even the first written words in an episode. It's the um, preface, right? A thousand ages in thy sight, Hey everyone, are like an evening gone. This is um even Short for the future. The watch that well, ends the night the future before of when the episode sun. one was recorded, just to keep that's things Gene um, Wolfian. We'll next time, if, if that's you what to you to want to call it. Some reason. Um, we forgot um, to music. episode two. This episode we'll talk about. Which kind of makes sense, you know. This episode was almost two hours long, so some things will slip for the cracks. So I'm just here to recommend music and put it at the end of this episode. And also to apologize for whatever glitches occur during the listening. Um, We had some technical difficulties with my internet connection and I had to do some splicing and dicing and so on. So if some stuff isn't as smooth as usual, then I apologize. Without further ado, let's talk about the Flight of Sleipnir, who are a band from Denver, Colorado. And that should tell you everything you need to know, right? Denver has this illustrious and super prolific metal scene in the last decade or even um, longer with many, many great bands. Um, I'm sure I don't need to recount them here, like Primitive Man and Dreadnought and many other bands. And Flight of Snapnir are no different in that they are excellent. They make a sort of warm, earthy, blackened doom with plenty of folk and progressive elements to it. And they recently released an album called Eventide. And on Eventide, they sort of dialed up the blackened influences, especially on the vocals, but also on the rest of the instruments, and went deeper into the quieter passages and the contrast that they create with the rest of the music. And it's 
really just a fantastic album released on May 28th and we're going to play Servitude which is the closing track from that album um, see you next time on episode 2 with Claw the Conciliator for now here's Flight of Sleipnir with Servitude <laughs>